0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget the donate button, subscribe if you're on YouTube, and most important, uh, come to the website and sign up on the email list. Um, in a few seconds, I'm going to be back with a student, Reed Hoffman, who asked to interview me, and uh, that's what we're going to do.
1: I had another question relating to Donetsk and Luhansk, um, the the breakaway regions. Um, you, you were saying that, and I, I agree entirely that there was really no excuse for either side to be using force in Donetsk and Luhansk. And when I say either side, I mean Russia and the Ukrainian military. Um, and you kind of answered it. But you, you were saying that you you think that they're at least in some portions their claim to self determination is legitimate. Is that is that your opinion?
0: From everything I understand, which is, I would say, to some extent minimal, uh, because I haven't been there, I'm, I'm not a student of the history, but I, as a first principle, support any people right to determine their own fate. You know, whether it's based on nationality or ethnicity. I'm a Canadian-U.S. Citizen, dual citizen. In Canada, where I grew up, I fully support Quebec's right to self-determination. I made a film about it called "Never Endem Referendum. If people want to watch, it's on my site under the documentary section. Um, there, there is absolutely no reason in any of these situations for countries to insist on defending the sovereignty, their control over areas, territories, it's, a, it's an issue for the elites because the elites own stuff. So if you take Donbass, which is a, has industry, has minerals, resources, agriculture, well, if you own that stuff, well, then the sovereignty really matters to you because you exercise. Like, how do you own anything?
1: Yeah, the you only area. own
0: something. Like a piece of paper says, oh, I own this house. It's, it's, it's meaningless unless there's a police force with guns that will come and evict anyone that marches in your house without your permission. So you, if you own stuff, you need a state, you need laws, and you need a way to protect that you own stuff. But if you work in a factory, If you work in a mine, you work on a farm, and you don't own that stuff, does it make that much damn difference to you which country, you know, what state? Well, yes and no, I would say. Yes and no. Yes, if the state you're in defends your rights as a worker somewhat more, somewhat better if you have more power than in the other state that might want to grab it. Okay, to some extent, yeah. But to a large extent, even if you take Donbass, okay, let's say they declared independence. The Ukrainian government should have just organized a referendum, internationally observed, and if the people wanted it, say, great, go. You know, honestly, from what I know of Donbass, all they really wanted in the beginning was a federal solution, like in Canada, you know, a situation where they have, like Quebec has its own civil code based on Napoleonic law. Uh, It's not like civil law is not the same in Quebec as the rest of the country. Uh, You also have language laws in Quebec to defend French language, which the people of uh, the Russian speaking people of Donbass may well have wanted. Uh, So, you know, that's what they wanted. And if the Ukrainian government wasn't run by such uh, corrupt, uh, much of them very right wing oligarchs, uh, they would have, you know, Found a peaceful solution to that situation. That said, the Russians' oligarchy is no better. You know, the, the Ukrainian oligarchy, Russian oligarchy. You know, they all came to power, stealing the assets of the people that were previously public when there was a Soviet Union, and and they, you know, they have states that represent their interests, and the Russians were not, you know, were no more interested. In a, in a peaceful resolution of Donbass, I don't think than, you, the, than Ukraine was because in the, the longer run play uh, was to try to get Donbass into this into the Russian Federation, and you know the speeches Putin has made about the fact that there there really is no Ukraine; it's all the Russian Brotherhood and all this. Uh, so. There could well have been a peaceful solution. Yes, I do believe, from what I understand, the people of Donbass have a right to self-determination. Uh, it should now be part of a peace solution, which is there should be now, uh, as a part of a peace agreement, an internationally supervised uh, referendum uh, for a le- for and give people of the of the Donbass region a legitimate choice whether they want to stay within Ukraine in a federal solution, do they want? independence and neutrality or do they want to join the Russian Federation? And you know the, the truth is the, the more uh, facilitating the Ukrainian government is the more people might want to actually stay because you know but the way it's now the, the, the problem now and this is how the elites use this issue of sovereignty, which is really for their benefit. Mostly. I'm not saying completely. Sometimes, like, sovereignty matters in order to defend the people from an external aggressor. So it's not, it's not a non-factor. And, it's, and, and, and we're not living in a world with, where you can have no borders now. So right. it's, a, it's a complicated question. But mm-hmm. the inflaming in, in, in of national identity. The inculcation from birth of national identity. This is, uh, you know, this goes back into feudalism, it goes back into slave society, where the elites who profit from and use, and to a large extent themselves internalized, national identity as a thing that has to be defended with your life. So the First World War is the best example, where the elites, in order to fight over the redivision of Europe and fight over the redivision of colonies around the world, send workers from all of Europe at each other's throats, so the elites can decide which elites are going to be dominant and which elites get to exploit, not just all the soldiers on all sides that are getting slaughtered. But which elites get to exploit their labor after the war? And people are willing to die for this stuff. You know, the national identity is so deep in the psyche. You know, you go to school in the United States. You know, you grow up, you got to put your hand on your heart at school and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Every country is doing that, more or less. And I have to say, they're doing it a lot in Russia. The, the, The promotion of Russian nationalism is virulent and connected with the uh, Russian Orthodox Church, that, that people's national identity is so connected with the uh, ideas that, oh, we were the empire. We need to be again. And it's all connected with the, ex- you know, they talk about American exceptionalism, and this is a very big part of the national identity. Well, now you got deep Russian exceptionalism, and it's not new. You know, before the Soviet Union, the uh, Russian nationalist and Russian Orthodox Church were virulently uh, pro this idea that Russia is a very unique, identified civilization that, def- that defends the Christian faith. And this Russian nationalism you know, was really promoted in schools and through the church and it had it was connected with the idea of empire. Of course the British did the same thing. I mean I mean there was no no one has done more uh, destruction on this earth than the British empire which I saw a number they may have killed more than a billion and a half people over 300 years. This this internalization of national identity is just so screwing up the people of Ukraine and Russia. And I you know one would think by this You know, after the Nuremberg trials and World War II, you know, we would have learned from this. Um, And we did for a time. We did. And as, you know, and one of the, as terrible as the police state became in the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union really was pretty good at trying to damp down this right wing uh, religious nationalism. but now Putin has brought it all back, and of course the Ukrainian oligarchs have brought it back into Ukraine. And you, again, you know, you have Ukrainian and Russian workers killing each other, uh, really on behalf of the oligarchs and thinking they're dying for their nation. You, you're
1: speaking of, you know, it's in this case and in many cases, but not all that sovereignty is oftentimes an issue between regional oligarchs and. You know, the elite, as it were. And so, you know, I've been following not just the situation in Ukraine, but the kind of unfolding ramifications around the world, specifically relating to the petrodollar and these, these sorts of financial ramifications. And I, I was wondering what your take on, you know, from the perspective of an oligarch, not necessarily from the perspective of a citizen like you and I, um, who, who do you think is winning this war, or at least who is benefiting um, significantly?
0: Oh, the Americans and the Chinese. Uh, I mean, the Americans. Uh, anyone that argues that this is hurting the Americans, yeah. I think, is nuts. Uh, the uh, this is this is a wet dream for the American military industrial complex. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's in, you know Germany's going to double their arms purchases and manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, Finland and Sweden are going to seriously talking about joining NATO. I mean, there were serious conversations going on. Is NATO even necessary prior to this? Uh, Even even Trump was talking about what do we need NATO for? And lots of people in Europe were saying, you know, the United States is nuts. Do we really want to be part of a a military alliance with crazy people at the helm of the United States? And now NATO's back to life. Uh, You know, reinvigorated NATO, massive increase in military budgets. um, The U.S. dollar is up and up and up. All this talk about oh, this is the end of the U.S. dollar. Well, I I don't see it. Um, the uh, <coughs> global capitalism is all about China and the United States, and Europe. Europe's a big economy, and they're they're in no rush to get off the U.S. dollar. You know, Russia may make noise about oh, trading at rubles and all that, but if yeah. Putin's gonna is turning Russia into a satellite of China, and uh, and what is the long term future of a Russian economy which is yeah. so uh, dominated by the fossil fuel and arms exports, uh, but also other stuff, minerals, agriculture, but the, but the fossil fuel sector is you know, yeah. by far the biggest. Um, so, what's the future yeah. of that economy? Uh, the so uh, yeah. Russia's a complete no win in this, uh, and the Chinese, uh, they're you know they're doing a balancing act, but it looks in the end they'll end up with you know an ally of, of Russia. They'll have access, you know, preferred access to Russian energy, and uh, it's not really hurting them in much of the world. And the United yeah. States can't afford to get into a real another sanction war with china the economies are too entwined the united states just needs the chinese market far too much and vice versa the chinese needs the american market so i mean you can't rule out though <coughs> the crazy shit factor and the united states the crazy shit factor is the the growing strength of christian nationalism and that includes a lot of the billionaire class who, who seem to be true actual believers, not just manipulators. And they see China, atheistic China, um, as the real enemy. In fact, much of, much of this sector sees Putin as an ally, a defender of the Christian faith, which is why Tucker Carlson and people like him were so reluctant yeah. uh, to, to go after Russia and, and join in, and even in Russia Gate and the other kinds of stuff. Uh, and and Taiwan as a trigger for this, uh, the Taiwanese are really pushing for more and more de facto independence, if not uh, recognition of actual independence. And there's forces in the United States, including from the military industrial sector, who, who who want this as tense as possible. And shit can happen. As much as rational minds on all sides may not want war over Taiwan, um, it wouldn't take much to trigger something that starts to get out of control. So, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: that's that's interesting. I I I think you're right. It's a it's really only a winning situation for the Americans and the Chinese. And
0: Here, here's that. the only way this becomes a kind of win for Putin and Russia. Um, but I'm not like predicting this; I'm more speculating. Maybe this is what Putin's thinking. If there, if, if or when the Republicans take control of Congress. Uh, if that happens, and certainly a lot of predictions are they will, if the Trumpist, either Trump himself or a Trumpist, becomes president, uh, then essentially the Christian nationalists will control three branches of government. They've got the Supreme Court, more or less. They'll have Congress, and then they'll have the president. That's a whole change of game. and It's a change of game vis-a-vis Russia because, as I said, a lot of these people see Putin as an ally. They, they, they can't not jump in on the anti-Putin rhetoric right now. Uh, the military-industrial complex certainly wants it. Uh, the, uh, the, all the ghosts and demons of the Cold War are so deeply implanted in the psyche of most Americans. Um, it's hard not to go along with it now. But I can imagine by 2024, if you get that kind of president, and Putin can imagine, that things really change. Uh, now you start to get back to Trump's, you know, who the hell needs NATO and the hell with Europe. Uh, now you have a real isolating and targeting of China. And now you have uh, a Russia that's no longer enemy number one, at least and maybe some normalization and relief of sanctions. and Most importantly, if you're Putin, you have climate deniers, climate science deniers back in power and, and more or less the end of any effective action on climate, which I have to say is also the end of human civilization as we know it, but, but not soon enough to worry fossil fuel, and, and Russian fossil fuel. So, so, if Putin's doing calculations like that, maybe he says, okay, you know, the longer term, I'll wind up with this very important piece of Ukraine, Donbass, the land bridge to Crimea, Crimea. Um, there's a lot of wealth wrapped up in that. Um, and I'll take the short term hits. But also, what have I accomplished, which is I've stoked Russian nationalism to such a degree that I can put somebody in jail just for calling this a war and not a special military operation, like the power that's accrued to him in the course of this nationalist fervor with the full, full support of the Russian Orthodox Church. If if there were any challenges to his power, uh, this war has really uh, solidified him. Uh, You A similar thing happened to George Bush. You know, before the invasion of Iraq, there was a TV show. It was called That's My Bush. And it was a political satire about the Bush family, and it just ridiculed President Bush while he was president on a mainstream television channel. That's, that's how, in such low esteem, Bush was. Will you stop that? Don't
1: you have some
0: laundry to do? Oh, you're right. I've got to do like your father did and separate the whites from the colors. Well, at least he believed in something. He invades Iraq, and all of a sudden, he's a wartime president. He's a hero. So I don't think that went unnoticed in the Kremlin or many other centers of power. And it's just unfortunate how many, how much. The populations, you know, are still capable of being so manipulated by national chauvinism and and, their, and this bullshit national identity and war. And uh, so, I, I you know, I, I guess those go, you know, are in his calculations. But I, I I don't think he really wins out of this. But you know, did the United States really win out of the Iraq War? Well, if they went there for the oil, they actually didn't wind up getting most of the oil. In fact, China has more oil contracts than the United States does. Uh, They wanted a pro-American government in Iraq. Well, the government in Iraq is as friendly with Iran as they are with the United States, maybe more friendly with Iran. So they didn't get that. But you know what they did get? They made a hell of a lot of money out out of the war itself, the process of the war. Same as Afghanistan, you know. In the end, they, they have to leave with the tail between their legs, but they made a, individual corporations made a ton of money out of it, and the same thing's going on in Russia, you know. The the oligarchs and and the, and the Russian state, which is you know, is almost like a fiefdom in many ways, is making a ton of money. The fossil, price of fossil fuel is through the roof, and, and they're still selling fossil fuel. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that they're selling less fossil fuel, maybe different customers, uh, but the price of that fossil fuel is through the roof. Um, all the, the fervor in, in arms exports, because much of the world still buying Russian arms, including India, which I think 60% of their arms come from Russia. So, so the, the actual process of war itself, whether you win or lose, Is very lucrative for the people that make money out of war. So it's a lot of factors at play here. But the the fundamental uh, issue is the uh, oligarchs win short term. Uh, Long term, human society is closer to coming to an end. Uh, Obviously, nuclear war is far more threatening now. I don't think there's a rational decision that's going to be made. To use nukes, there is actual serious conversation about low yield tactical nuclear weapons, which is about as insane a conversation as you can get because to think, like if you have a tactical nuclear weapon, so let's say, I don't think this is happening, but let's say the Russians are about to not just lose uh, in Donbass, but they get so defeated in Donbass that there's actually serious conversation in NATO. Uh, oh, should we take this even further and wipe out some Russian troops on the Russian side? I I really don't think this is going to happen. I am no way predicting this. But what I am saying is if there was a use of a tactical nuclear weapon by the Russians, because any real threat to the Russian state is when they say they would use it, but what they really mean is any serious defeat of Russian conventional forces they might use it. Now, the Americans have exactly the same protocol in place and have had since uh, essentially the, the invention of the nuclear bomb. But the American war plans always were, and this is part of what's going to be in this film I'm doing with Ellsberg any one brigade, American brigade, gets in a direct fight with a Russian, uh, or Soviet at the time, but Russian now, and starts to lose the protocol is nuclear weapons come next. Now, it used to be, I don't know if it still is, but it, it might well be, full out nuclear war against uh, Russia and, Ch- and China, even if China's not involved. That was the military protocol, and many people think still is. The point is, if you say, let's say it starts with a tactical nuclear weapon. Okay, the other side isn't going to just sit there. Okay, you're going to use low, quote unquote, low yield? Well, so will we. Boom. Well, you're going to well I, well, now I will like how do it doesn't end because neither side will accept defeat. It has to escalate and it, and and the room for error in such a situation, even an almost situation, now you see a missile coming in. How do you know if it's nuclear or not? There's no time to figure it out um, and, and and the real uh, deterrent is in the submarines on both sides. And as soon as the shit starts to fly, the subs have the orders to let loose.
1: A full salvo from an Ohio-class submarine, which can be launched in less than one minute, could unleash up to 192 nuclear warheads to wipe 24 cities off the map.
0: Now the Russians the same thing. I mean, you know, they have a very similar level. The American subs and weaponry is more advanced, but the Russians have more than enough to wipe out the United States. And then number two, while the oligarchs are all and I'm when I say this, I I, I certainly include American oligarchs, British oligarchs, French, Canadian, the Saudi. I mean, you name it. Well, they're all going to make short term more and more money out of those. Um, climate change is going to completely destroy organized human society and, and much, much sooner than these oligarchs think. And, and they, they don't take seriously the reports from the IPCC, which are conservative. You know, they're saying now we're going to hit 1.5 degree warming by uh, 2033, so, you know, like a little more than a decade. Well, 1.5 degree warming is a disaster. It's not an okay leveling. 1.5 is just, we can't do any better than leveling off at 1.5. But 1.5 is extreme, wet, like maybe double the extreme weather events we're having now. And then you get to 1.5, it's almost impossible not to get to two unless you have radically changed energy policies now. So you get to two and much of the southern, south of the globe becomes unlivable so tens of hundreds of millions of people have to head north then what and then you get into 2 to 3 degrees and and by by 2 degrees if not sooner most of agriculture in the midwest of the united states is gone gone and and so the oligarchs are making you know, making out like bandits, and and bandits is a mild word for who they are. Um, they they are ushering in the end of organized human society. So even if we avoid nuclear war, uh, we are absolutely heading into hell. And they are just—they're in denial because they are in an orgy of money making. It's a drug, uh, and and they are. You know their daily life, most of these oligarchs, is drugs, sex, and debauchery, and you know hundreds of million dollars of yachts, and you know on and on. And then they have these states who protect them and who feed, you know, this kinds of nationalism amongst the people. So. Yeah, so you, just back to your question about who wins and and whatever, uh, you know, short term these oligarchs, you know, they're they are winning short term. Long term, you know, they they think their money going to protect them, um, but I I, I think in, you know they're wrong.
1: It's, um ambitions, which you know, I'll, I'll just say as a side note, my brother is currently getting his PhD in astrophysics, and he's kind of focusing on, you know. Earth's total resources and what would be required to actually colonize Mars or extract resources in an efficient manner, which I think is kind of, there's certainly like a Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk faction of the ruling class that sees that, I think, at least personally, I think, as their way out. Um, and the resources just aren't there, it's just not feasible. Um, we don't have enough fuel for the rockets, it's just not happening. Um, so I, I agree with you.
0: Well, even, even, even if it could happen, it ain't happening in a time frame. That's going to matter, and by the time we're at that time frame, you know who knows what's left of human society. Like if they thought they had global supply chain problems with a pandemic, yeah. I mean, imagine imagine what it's like when hundreds and hundreds of millions of people head yeah. north. You know, then what do those supply chains look like?